Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 15th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last Friday, Donald Trump, our president, sat down with Fox News anchor Janine Pirro, a judge, Judge Janine Pirro, in a generally fawning exercise in brand extension. There were half a dozen variations on the question, your agenda's so great, what can we do to enact it? Would you agree that but for your getting totally involved in the House and working with the Freedom Caucus and then the Tuesday group, you know, but for your being as hands-on and as involved, that House bill might never have passed? I agree, but I will also say they're great people. Now, let's just reset the other big interview that happened this week. It was with Lester Holt, and right-wing media delighted in counting the number of times Holt interrupted President Trump. I mean, interrupting the president, it was like an interrogation. Here's the thing, though. After everything the president said, Lester Holt questioned him. Oh, you said that? Well, what about this? Which, it seemed like an interrogation. Steve Ducey of Fox and Friends demonstrating a keen understanding of, well, maybe just the Friends part of his title. In truth, Judge Janine interrupted Prez Trump a fair amount, but it was to agree with him. Just a question. Let me finish. So wouldn't it be better because all of the successes that we can talk about are being overshadowed by this Russia story? By fake news. Uh, by fake news. Now, here's why I bring up the Janine Pirro non-interview. I would like to interrogate this non-interrogation. Fox News did a softball interview with Trump. That barely warrants a mention. But I wonder how many people know of the connection between Trump and Pirro. Pirro, a former prosecutor from New York, was also a politician. She ran for attorney general, and Trump donated $20,000 to her campaign. But beyond that, far beyond that is this fact. Pirro's ex-husband, Albert, was the major real estate lawyer in Westchester at the time. Trump had lots of business in Westchester. He had a big golf course. He kept Pirro on retainer. So this means Pirro, the interviewer, has been remunerated to the tune of how many tens of thousands of dollars by Trump, the interviewee, over the years? Maybe he bought her her marble staircases. Maybe he bought her their expensive vacations to Italy. Maybe he bought her her Mercedes. We don't know. But Trump has given a lot of money to the woman sitting across from him doing an interview. Now, Albert and Janine, they had a rocky time. She was placed under federal investigation for discussing ways to secretly tape her now ex-husband. And guess what mattered did not come up in her interview with the president, who once called the interviewer sexy as hell. That issue was taping. I don't know. Why do I bother, right? Maybe there is, though, in this, in my imagined universe, someone out there who is on the fence about the fake news thing. Well, which way is it fake? Is it really fake? So I would just point to this and say that is a pretty compelling exhibit person who doesn't exist. On the show today, I spiel about the newly created panel investigating voter fraud. 
But first, she is the host of On the Media. She is a former boss of mine, dare I say, a mentor. She is out with a new book that is small but packs a wallop. It's seeking to help you, the person who became unmoored after Donald Trump was elected president. Here to help, she's Brooke Gladstone. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know Brooke Gladstone, she wears many hats, although literally I've never seen her wear a hat, such (laughs) as life with uh, curly locks, what I used to call NPR (laughs) hair. She's the host of On the Media, the public radio program On the Media. She's the author of 2011's The Influencing Machine, uh, subtitled Brooke Gladstone On the Media, just in case you didn't know what her uh, professional affiliation was. And now her new book, it's a slim book, oh, but a deep read, a treatise, if you will, or as she calls it, a rumination. It is called The Trouble with Reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time. Hello, Brooke. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Mike. They say all great works of nonfiction, including treatises and ruminations and extendo pamphlets, uh, (laughs) answer a question. What question were you out to answer? I think fundamentally the question is, if you are feeling a sense of panic, if you have a kind of nausea that has you sitting bolt upright in the middle of the night, and it seems to go far beyond politics, because let's face it, if you live long enough, you're bound to have presidents that you hate or mistrust. You're bound to have some fear. You're certainly bound to feel disaffected. But if this seems worse than all of that, then your reality has broken. And I'm going to try to address that horrible sense of queasiness by explaining how and why. And I dove down a bunch of rabbit holes, and I'm saying, come, come with me. See what I can figure out. 
and see if mm-hmm. you agree. So it's more of that. I wander around from Philip K. Dick to Jonathan Swift to William James to Walter Lippmann to inevitably Hannah Arendt and back again. And it's all in the quest and it's all part of a quest for have we been here before? What makes this similar to earlier epics? What makes it different? What do we need to do to feel better? I guess it's a little bit of the therapist part, but it's not very prescriptive. Well, it's only therapeutic because if facts can help us or context can help us. But, you know, making uh, the point that we've been here before can perhaps be comforting since we've been through it. Although, Hannah Arendt, especially those chapters, point out we may have been here before and it's in the area of uh, tyrants and totalitarians. That's not a good thing. (laughs) That's right. Uh, She isn't talking about policy in the sections that I quote. She's talking about rhetoric. She's talking about message making, and she's talking about grabbing hold of reality and making it conditional and changeable and flooding the ether with alternate realities to the point where basically it becomes a subjective decision. If you can't work from a common pool of facts, then you can't have a democracy. So we are, in case uh, the listener hasn't been aware, we are talking about Donald J. Trump and the election. But <laughs> there's, a phrase, there's a phrase in your book, and you just mentioned ether. You say dominate the ether. And this idea is that if we debate, you know, are his tweets smart? Are his tweets stupid? Do they reflect a strategy? Has he somehow backed into a way to, you know, advance his agenda uh, because he's lucky or so tactical? Your explanation is... What he's trying to do, and then maybe you could tell me if you think it's conscious or not, what he's trying to do is just flood us with so much information to dominate the ether that it doesn't matter if a bunch of the stuff he tweets has been proven wrong, he's on to the next thing and we'll never be able to you know, hold him accountable or, uh, and he'll always have the upper hand since he's the one who controls the spigot and how much uh, the ether gets dominated. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fundamentally it. But more important, for the engines of accountability, especially the media, he's filled the air with a bunch of shiny objects, and uh, we, the reporters, go after them all like dogs after squirrels. We don't Mm. really see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that he is saying, and this is something Masha Gessen has said in the New York Review of Books, I am assuming control over reality. And that is the point. It isn't the individual lies. It's the fact that he can lie with such abandon and one can never catch up to them. And one knows that whatever he says today may be contradicted tomorrow. So you don't even focus that much on them. Creates a great fog that obscures basically the world that we're living in and whatever it is he wants to do, if in fact he even knows. And Masha, having lived in the USSR and having lived under Putin, and uh, I don't think this part was quoted in your book, but I have seen her talking about this. She says the effect is that we all turn to each other and we turn to our neighbor. And even if maybe some of us are more right about what he's wrong about, we just say, "Uh, who could know anything? Right. Then he wins. Right. Uh, She wrote that uh, it's not just that Putin and Trump lie, it's that they lie in the same way and for the same purpose, blatantly to assert power over truth itself. And uh, and what does that do for a democracy? Consensus 
is the bedrock of democracy, right? This is something that Ned Reznikoff wrote in Think Progress. When Mm -hmm. political actors can't agree on basic facts and procedures, compromises and rule-bound argumentation are basically impossible. Politics reverts back to its natural state as a raw power struggle in which the weak are dominated by the strong. When truth is little more than an arbitrary personal decision that each of us can make because we've decided we can't believe anybody, then there's no common ground to be reached and no incentive to look for it. You did write a book, and I mentioned it. The subtitle is uh, Brooke Gladstone, I think. You did write a book called <laughs> The Influencing Machine. Hey, that subtitle was not my idea. That was forced on me by the publisher. Blame Norton. <laughs> um, here's, so here's my question. Basic premise of that book. We give news media way too much credit as a means of influencing. Uh, we almost mythologize it, and we build it up into pretending that it has much more impact than it does. Really, it reflects us rather than influences us. And yet with this election, look at how the internet and new media really influenced, if not us, then our fellow man in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, et cetera. <laughs> so was, are you, would, you, would you amend your old premise? I mean, first of all, the media is not a unitary thing, right? There's tons of it, and it's all different, and it ranges from, you know, InfoWars to C-SPAN and the New York Times. So you've got that. But basically, my fundamental argument is that, in that book, is that the Internet makes us more of what we were going to be anyway, and it allows us to do it ever more seamlessly without ever having to have an encounter with information that's inconsistent with what we believe. Actually, in 2011, that was already a pretty old idea, and now it's just part of the conventional wisdom. We know that it's true. If it keeps sending messages powerfully to us that we are receptive to, it deepens those neural pathways. I mean, media. most media wants to make money right? That's what they want to do. So they're going to find your sweet spot and they're going to keep hammering it. And we become obese with the information that we like, that feels good. The media are responsible for creating a situation in which we can't see each other anymore, but that's because we don't want to see each other. So you refer to the media chasing down each shiny bauble. So the Washington Post has the running list of Trump's lies. It's around 500. Somehow, the Toronto Star has only uh, counted around 300 of them. Come on, Star. Yeah, Do you Canadians. think we should, not, we should not be doing this? Is that chasing around a bauble? I like it. It might not have any impact, but I'm glad some media somewhere is counting and keeping a tab on these lies. Oh, yeah. I, so future generations. I think facts are vitally important. And I think so what we are the need baubles to keep a- that we're what are the baubles that we're chasing? I, I don't mean the people who are doing his bidding and uh, you know right. doing doing his bidding and pumping up Ivanka's brands. I mean the people who think they are doing a good job. What should they be doing differently? What have they been paying attention to that they shouldn't be? I think that is part of the job. And I'm glad there are reporters that are tallying that when Trump says the inauguration is going to be so big, they've run out of dresses. And and somebody from the Washington Post goes to all these places that sell dresses and find out, no, they didn't run out. I mean, that's a bauble. I think we will agree that uh, there isn't a huge amount of significance. It just basically says, yeah, this guy is a liar. 
This lie is of no importance. It's just a reflection of his vanity. We don't need to be convinced of that anymore. So I'm talking about where do you want to put your resources? I think facts are important only when they can be relevant to people's lives. So the important facts and the important lies have to be put in context. If you know this to be false, say on healthcare, that you aren't going to get uh, coverage for your pre-existing condition because states can decide whether or not you do, then that is, or that you can at an affordable price, then that is a lie that absolutely affects your daily life. Yeah, when, when the media does a good job, I think regular people don't even credit it for being the media or a story. It's just like, well, that's reality. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, it is reality. <laughs> the media told you about it, but it's reality. Now I it's reality yeah. because you see it. You feel mm-hmm. it. When people begin to see stories, it. Yeah. And that's why the important things are job creation. And yes, he did make, maybe make 700 carrier <laughs> jobs come back or whatever the real coal mining jobs are. But I really do think the media has to do, or someone from somewhere in the media has to do something that gains a lot of purchase that really tells you where coal is or isn't going. Because for all the claims about coal, you, you kind of have to show that there are no more new coal jobs coming back. And once coal miners tell you that, if in three years the coal miners are like, we're still ex-coal miners, I think that will have an impact. That's right. But then people will look back and say, well, maybe we did see this somewhere. At least I can hope that's true. <laughs> I think that if what the high-quality American media are saying now starts to reflect what is going on in their lives, ultimately, as we get further into the Trump administration, maybe trust of the media will rise. Maybe it won't stay at 14% for Republicans. You may be right on a tactical level. I hate to think you're right because it just kind of says, well, he can't do anything wrong. The day we're speaking, he gave an interview to Lester Holt, he, uh, we're talking about Donald J. Trump, which <laughs> contradicted his talking points and idea that he was, that Comey was fired uh, because of a letter written by his, the assistant attorney general on May 9th. Sarah Huckabee Sanders from the podium of the White House, which used to mean something, maybe a little, uh, totally contradicted the president and herself. And so in the way of thinking that he's dominating the, the ether, you would say, well, that's it. That's good. They're doing their job. In my kind of old nostalgic way of thinking, I would say, well, that's a point against them. Somehow they will lose ground. Somehow they screwed up. You think I'm wrong? Yeah, well, all I can say is so far it's not having much of an impact. I mean, I think in the uh, in a recent interview, was it with uh, The Economist? He said he invented the phrase priming the pump. There's a bauble yeah. for you. I even right. think somewhere he said he invented the phrase, it was in a tweet, uh, the early bird gets the worm. I mean, you know, he just does all of this stuff. He's a noted ornithologist. I want to point that out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the famous Hamilton tweet uh, mm-hmm. that he said, you know, the Hamilton tweet should apologize to the vice president, you know, and it's overrated. I mean, this got the media elite in their sweet spot on the coasts and they care about Broadway. And uh, they spent a lot of time on that and were distracted from uh, Donald Trump's $25 million settlement for fraud over the uh, Trump universities. I mean, this is the thing that I'm concerned about. We need to focus on the stuff that matters. I'm not saying it isn't fun and great that people are tallying up the lies. I'm simply saying that we don't live in a world of infinite resources. 
on the one hand, we're taking, we're learning how to game plan Trump by focusing on the important stuff. On the other hand, Jimmy Kimmel's going to be the thing that sinks healthcare. It doesn't seem like there's a general trend towards seriousness of reporting if, if both those things are true. Why not? I mean, the fact of the matter is, this goes back to what I said before, which is that you have to understand how a particular fact will change your life. And the media do this all the time. They tell stories. They offer individual stories of people that you might identify with. Here's a guy with a huge audience offering an individual story, his own. And, uh, and that does have an enormous impact. It doesn't mean that the media doesn't matter. What it really means simply is that those kinds of stories, putting facts in context, saying the health care bill will not cover my kid is like, oh, it won't? This guy can't be lying because it's his kid and he's crying, you know? Brooke Gladstone is the author of The Trouble with Reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time, a Brooke Gladstone reader. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me just say, the other book didn't have my name twice. It was The Influencing Machine, Brooke Gladstone on the Media. Yeah, implying that you are the influencing machine, like the greatest, <laughs> colon, Muhammad Ali and his fight for <laughs> championships and civil rights. Exactly like that. Uh, do you know that Al Franken apparently is putting out a book? He now trusts that he'll still be reelected, even if he shows a sense of humor, and I think it's called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate by Al Franken. <laughs> <laughs> It's fantastic. And also, it's nice to see that he will, he's given up all hope of running for president. I don't know. It works for, it worked for Donald Trump. Yeah. Brooke, thank you so much. Mike, thank you. And now the spiel, perhaps lost among the tumult over the uproar, surrounded by the chaos engendered by the roiling pandemonium that was the firing of James Comey, was this bit of news. The president has formed a commission to look at voting fraud in the last election. President Trump says there were over 3 million illegal votes. Let's now check his margin of defeat. Ah, it was 2.9 million. How interesting. There is no qualified expert. There is no credentialed academic. There's not even a serious elected official who has backed up Trump's claims. Well, there is one guy, though. This is Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. I think uh, the president-elect is absolutely correct when he says the number of illegal votes cast <laughs> exceeds the popular vote margin between him and Hillary Clinton at this point. And that was Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. Last week, Mike Pence named who would lead the commission at his side would be Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. So Pence and Kobach will lead this commission. Now, past commissions have looked at voting. It's a normal, usual thing after an election. And what you do is you get people, respected people from both sides. After the 2012 election, Mitt Romney's top lawyer and Barack Obama's top lawyer, they chaired the commission. A while back, it was James Baker and Jimmy Carter. Now we have Kobach and Pence. They went for two very conservative politicians who are both Republicans who have stated positions in favor of voter ID laws. 
Now, this could turn into a very classic political story, right? Hack commission, pre-baked conclusion, a few members of the other party to give it the patina of bipartisanship. All that's going on, by the way. I'm not saying that's not happening. That's all happening. But the voter integrity or voter fraud issue is different. I think it's unique in American politics. And I'm going to explain how. You might not look at it the same way again. There are a few issues, public issues, public debates, that really are honestly discussed. Both sides just trying to find the best solution. The 9-11 Commission, that's an example of that. Now, most issues aren't an honest search for truth, but they are at least an honest disagreement. One side wants funding for ethanol. One side thinks it's a waste. No one's lying. They just have different positions, different priorities. Then there are the issues when we disagree on the worth of a solution. Let us take conceal carry. The two sides do not disagree that there is a real problem in America. And that problem is the possibility of being the victim of a gun crime. The question is what to do about it. I mean, gun crimes happen. People are victimized. The disagreement is the solution. Conceal carry. How much does conceal carry? Solve the problem. The gun rights crowd says it solves it a lot. Solves it totally. The gun control crowd says not only does it not solve it, it makes the problem worse. So conceal carry. There we have an actual problem, a fight over the solution. With other issues, there's a disagreement if there's even a problem. Abortion. Pro-life side says the problem is real. It's more than real. It's the most dire thing around. You're killing babies. That's pro-life side. Pro-choice side says we don't think women getting abortions is a problem. They might try out a phrase like safe, legal, and rare, but they don't think women getting abortions is a problem. They disagree if there is even a problem. But at least the side that thinks there is a problem is offering a solution that would solve the problem. Problem abortions, solution ban abortions. That definitely would solve the problem if you think it's a problem. All right, so now we've documented a couple kinds of issues. Uh, We think there is a problem, we disagree on the solutions, or we don't think there is a problem, but if there is a problem, the solution really would be the solution. Here's a new category. Let's take cutting taxes on the wealthy. That's in this category. The sides disagree if there is a problem. And one side pretty much knows that it is offering solution where the main motivation isn't really solving the problem. But the motivation is money. The motivation is for them to make money. So sometimes people are lying about everything, but the motivation is for people to get rich. This goes on beyond politics. This goes on in business all the time. Uh, A business is offering what they say is the solution. They really just want you to buy it to make money. So there is that big category where we say there's a problem, we propose the solution, the entire point is the people proposing the solution are going to get rich off it. Now there's voter fraud. And voter fraud is, I believe, unique in American politics. I could be wrong. If you could think of another example, let me know about it. But the entire reason that voter fraud is so actively pursued as a problem is to get to a desired solution. And that solution will not solve the problem. That solution is being pursued to bring about a policy that would affect a change unrelated to the problem. The solution is voter ID, voter ID laws. Voter ID laws have been demonstrated factually, academically, through serious surveys, demonstrated to suppress voter turnout among minority groups. It just does. Forget fault, forget blame. It generally hurts Democratic politicians and Democratic voters and helps Republican and conservative politicians and conservative voters. And that is why voter fraud exists as an issue. 
Okay, there is some, a little bit of usefulness just in pretending the problem really is the problem because it animates conservative voters. I get that. But that is not the real reason all of this is going on. That is not the real reason conservatives, some conservatives, bang on about this as a problem when it's really a tiny, tiny phenomenon. And I only say this having looked at every case where voter fraud is said to have swung an election in the last decade because it's never happened. There, there is fraud. Some fraud does take place. And some people will dishonestly argue that the rate of fraud is lower than it actually is. And they will say things like, oh, a voter ID law would have only corrected one ballot. That's not exactly fair. I was talking about the other week that in North Carolina, out of four and a half million votes, they did find a few hundred instances of voter fraud. Only one would have been prevented by a voter ID law. But in general, that's about the rate. One out of every 10,000 votes in America these days is cast fraudulently. 0.01%. Voter ID laws suppress minority voters at a much higher percent. So professors at the University of California, San Diego and Michigan State showed that turnout is more than seven percentage points lower in general elections and five points lower in primaries in states with strict voter IDs than in other states. Other minority groups are also affected, not as much as Hispanics, but they're demonstrably affected. Strict voter ID laws translates to fewer self-identified liberals voting, and that is the point. And this, my friends, is this thing that we're loath to name if we want to be taken seriously in politics. Do you know what this is? This is a conspiracy. This is one group pursuing a supposed problem to enact a solution that has nothing to do with the problem, but everything to do with a gain in another area. It is a daisy chain of a bank shot, but that's exactly what's going on. It's not a hidden conspiracy. If you follow this, you knew exactly what was going on, but that is what's happening. And this time around, the animating force, I'll concede, the reason this commission exists might not be everything I've said. It might be to assuage a presidential ego, but it's mostly because of electoral pressure. Make no mistake, the reason there is an entire infrastructure, the reason that Chris Kobach and other secretaries of state who want to actively pursue voter ID, the reason why they've been doing this for years has nothing to do with the fact that Donald Trump got his feelings hurt. It's exactly what I've been talking about. It's about voter suppression, and it is all out there in plain sight. And that's it for today's show. The trouble with just producer Chris Berube's reality is too many shows in his Netflix queue and too few options to watch Netflix at 1.5 speed. The trouble with producer Mary Wilson's reality is when the cashier says, can I help the following customer? She can't quite identify the grammatical error, but she knows there is one. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast, and his reality has been troubled as of late by the trend of guys on TV buttoning their sports jackets while sitting down. There used to be a word for that. That word was wrong. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The trouble with his reality is that everyone is pitching the same podcast to him. It's like shit town, but for New Rochelle. It's a lot easier said than executed. The gist. Here's our trouble with reality. It's The Daily, the New York Times podcast, The Daily. I love the content, 
But what's with everyone they interview trying to get out of the interview, trying to shake Babaro off the phone because they have more important things to do? Yeah, we get it. I, as a podcast listener, I'm just not worth as much as a newspaper reader. I get it. You tell me that all the time. Could we at least further the illusion? You know what I would like just once? I would like to read an article in the paper that begins today in Washington, D.C. And I'll be quick about what happened because I've got to get to a podcast. But the chairman of the Senate Intel Committee, that is what I want. Podcasts matter. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.